0: At this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Paul's epistle to the Romans. Chapter 3, verses 21 through 31. Romans 3, verses 21 through 31. Let's give careful attention now to God's Holy Word, beginning in verse 21. Whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith, and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word to us this morning. Amen. Relying upon God this morning for His help and blessing, let's turn back to Romans chapter 3. As we focus our attention in particular on verses 27 through 30. Verses 27 through 30. Paul, having just expounded the need for salvation and then the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ, now says this Where is boasting then? It is excluded. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. We'll be looking at the remainder of those verses that I mentioned, but we begin simply with this rhetorical question and answer from the Apostle Paul. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. According to Paul, the biblical gospel excludes boasting. It excludes any sense of personal, individual, or corporate superiority on the basis of human works, on the basis of a whole host of things as we'll see here this morning. But he says that the Gospel excludes boasting. What is it about the Gospel that excludes boasting? Is it a law of works? No. There's some sense in which, even in God's covenant of works or law of works that He established with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, e- even in that sense, there, had Adam obeyed on the behalf of all of his constituency, all mankind descending from him by ordinary generation, had he obeyed on our behalf, there would have been something to his credit. Now that credit by no means would have merited eternal life. Temporary obedience could not have, strictly speaking, merited eternal life in the same way that the infinite merit of Christ earns eternal life for His people. But there would have been something to His credit. There would have been a principle of works, a law of works, as we say, a covenant of works, that would have given some credit to Adam for his obedience on our behalf covenantally obtaining, though not strictly meriting, eternal life for his constituents, for those whom he represented. So it's not the law of works that excludes all boasting. Of course, the law of works excludes most forms of boasting because not unto us, not unto us, but unto your glory, O God. So the law does exclude most every form of boasting, but but there's something unique about the way in which the the covenant of grace, the gospel of grace, the law of faith excludes boasting. Because it excludes even any credit whatsoever to mankind in this matter of eternal life. If it's not by our works in any sense, not even Adam's obedience on our behalf, then God gets all the glory, Christ gets all the glory, the second Adam receives all honor and credit whatsoever and so we receive nothing. Nothing in our hands we bring, only to the cross we cling. It's not the law of works, but the law of faith. The gospel of justification by faith alone. No one is righteous, not one. Our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, but we have the righteousness of Christ, which He accomplished 100%. It is finished. And it's available to us by faith. It's a law of faith, a principle of faith, a covenant of grace through faith. And that's what excludes any boasting, any superiority of any kind whatsoever. And he goes on to point this out, specifically in terms of individual boasting. Verse 28, Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Notice he begins with the individual. Because there is something in every individual that tempts us, that inclines us as sinners by nature to want to boast and take pride in ourselves. We have this tendency, this sinfulness within us, this original sin which tends toward wanting to do it ourselves and take credit for ourselves. And so he addresses this problem of individual boasting. Now from the context we know he's specifically addressing the Jewish superiority complex that existed in that first century context and which had influenced even some of the professing Christian Jews inside the church at Rome. And so he's specifically refuting the kind of um, moralism, legalism, self-righteousness That had made its way into the Jewish community as a predominant characteristic of rabbinic or Pharisaical Judaism. Jesus addresses this in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke chapter 18, this cultivation of individual boasting and self superiority. Luke 18, verse 9, Jesus spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. Listen to the Pharisee. He stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector, the other man that's at the temple to pray. I'm better than him. I fast." Twice a week I give tithes of all that I possess. Jesus is portraying here the temptation that we all have by nature, but was in, which was embedded in Pharisaical Judaism this, this tendency to personal boasting, personal self righteousness, personal superiority. You can see that in Romans chapter 10. Verse 3, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. So there is this individual, personal self-righteousness, self-superiority, boasting in myself religiously or morally. I'm getting to heaven based upon my own good works. You see it in Roman Catholicism. You see it throughout the many pseudo-Christian cults that exist in the world today individual personal boasting and Paul is saying that that is excluded. It's excluded. Now in many cases when we read through Romans 3 and we read through verses like verse 27 that's as far as we go and we forget the actual context of the first century and we forget that the primary issue for the first century Jewish community under the influence of the Pharisees the primary issue was not personal, or individual boasting. That was not the primary issue for them. That was not the primary thing that hindered them from the Gospel. Yes, it was there, and in certain extremely zealous people like Jesus portrays with the Pharisee at the temple in that parable, yes, that was a problem. Look at me. I'm better than this other person. But for the bulk of the community, that was not the problem. The problem was corporate or national boasting. For some of the hotshot, all-star, rabbinic Jewish people, yes, they're boasting themselves, but the bulk of the Jewish people were boasting in their adherence to the corporate community of the Jewish religion, and even to the nation of the Jews. That is what was chiefly in Paul's mind in this passage so he doesn't merely address personal boasting verse 28 but he goes on to address the crux of the matter in verse 29 why is it that so many of these Jewish people were boasting in themselves well partly it was maybe their own good works but partly even predominantly it was their corporate national ethnic identity and so verse 29 Or is He the God of the Jews only? Is He not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. So, these two categories are Jew and Gentile. And the Jews rightly understood that salvation is of the Jews. John chapter 4. They had the means of grace that pointed to salvation in Christ. But they rested in that And they took comfort in that in a nominalistic kind of way and said, well, we're part of the corporate body of the Jews. We're part of the nation and ethnicity of the Jews. God is the God of the Jews. He's not the God of the Gentiles. And therefore, we're saved and they are not saved. And Paul is addressing this. He's saying, is God the God of the Jews only? Didn't God create all mankind? Didn't God create all nations? Don't all nations stand in a relationship of creature to creator in relation to God? Is not God the judge of all the earth? Is not God the one, as we sang in Psalm 94, who chastens and instructs all the nations? Was it not the reason that He called the Jews specifically and specially as His covenant people that they might be a light to the Gentiles? Does not God have direct dealings with Jews and Gentiles? has he not saved many gentiles throughout history and has he not damned and condemned many jews throughout history the reality is that the jews and even there's some influence in the christian jews in the church at rome there's there's some temptation here to nationalistic and corporate boasting and superiority because that uh, god in a sense they would say is the god of the jews Paul says He's the God of the Gentiles also. He says, verse 30, since there is one God. Think about that. Everyone must answer to God. If there's one God, they're answering to the same God of the Bible. The God of the Jews is the God of the Gentiles. He's the God of everyone. There is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith. So people that are part of the national, religious, ethnic community of the Jews He'll justify them through faith in Christ, if they're circumcised, and the uncircumcised through faith. So the Gentiles are saved by the same gospel, by the same Savior. They're justified by the same God. God has dealings with both Jews and Gentiles. Both are accountable. Both are saved in the same way. Both go to heaven or hell in the same exact way. Notice uh, earlier in the chapter, as he's reasoning with the Jewish mentality, what then? Verse 9. Are we better than they? See, it's not just the Pharisee at the temple. Am I better than him? But it's, are we better than they? Are we better than they? Corporate, national boasting and superiority. A sort of patriotic national pride. And this was a massive stumbling block for the salvation of Jewish people. Not just for the Christian life and the unity of the Christian church in the believers at Rome, but this was a massive problem throughout the world when the gospel came to the Jew first and there was an advantage to the Jew. This was the stumbling block. We are better than they. And the Jews would resent when God saved Gentiles through Christ. They would resent that the apostles even would preach to the Gentiles. There was this patriarchal, patriotic, national pride that caused many to go to hell. Jesus dealt with this when He told His uh, fellow countrymen among the Jews, He said, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. You remember their response in John chapter 8? John chapter 8, verse 32, and uh, Jesus says, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Maybe there are others out there that need freedom, but we've got it. We have this patriarchal status, patriotic status, nationalistic, ethnic status. We don't need freedom, we have civil liberty. Now they were conquered by the Romans, but the Jews retained more of their civil liberty than many other nations and peoples that had been conquered by the Romans. That's why in John 11 verse 48, you find that the religious leaders are wanting to crucify Jesus so that they don't lose their place and their nation. If we let Jesus live, the Romans will come and they will take away our place and our nation. They'll take away some of the freedoms and liberties that we have that other nations under Roman domination do not have. And they prided themselves with this, and when the Son of God came to make them free indeed, they put up a stone wall and said, we don't need that. We have civil liberty. Uh, We have this patriotic national Pride, boasting in it. So it sent many people to hell. This is a big problem. That's why Paul's addressing it in this epistle to the Romans. And we can glean from what he says here this doctrine. The following doctrine out of our text. An unbelieving and impenitent nation which regards itself as superior on account of its glorious past, its spiritual advantages, Its temporal freedom and prosperity, or its professed adherence to basic morality is utterly self deceived. Let me read that again, and we'll be unpacking it with God's help this morning. An unbelieving and impenitent nation, which regards itself as superior on account of its glorious past, its spiritual advantages, its temporal freedom and prosperity, or its professed adherence to basic morality, is utterly self-deceived. And in case you were wondering, I came up with this outline and the title long before I was even thinking about Memorial Day. But in God's providence, here we are. An unbelieving and impenitent nation. Nation. What is a nation in the biblical sense? Well, it can be a number of things, but in terms of our text and the 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 substance of this teaching, we're thinking of a nation as a people group, as a culture or society, as a, a nation with a common government, a common civilization. So it's not merely ethnic. There's a societal, national element here. There's a governmental element. There's a cultural element. So it's difficult to define. Uh, but we're thinking here of a nation. We think of the United States of America as a nation, and we can look at it from all these different angles. It's a people group historically, it's a culture, it's a society, it has a common government, and it is a common civilization that can be traced even back before the government uh, or the current constitution was established in 1789. But when Paul's dealing with nations here, Uh, He's dealing with Jews and Gentiles. Gentile being ethnos. The ethnicities or people groups that are not Jewish. So you've got the Jews and the non-Jews. In other words, all the nations of the world. And Paul says that God is the God of both of them. Now that's not to deny the uniqueness of God setting up His covenant people within the nation of Israel and among the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. uh, But he can set up his church within a nation and then move it to other nations and, and spread it out throughout all nations. It doesn't make that particular ethnic group to, to have some perpetual, unlosable status. The Jews in some sense are a pattern for all nations in the new covenant that, oh, that the gospel would come to every nation the way it came to the Jews in the Old Testament. and. There would be the worship of God at the center of society and the law of God and the promises of God embedded in the very fabric of every institution, uh, at least the Old Testament at its best or as it was made to be or designed to be uh, with Israel at that time. But but this is what we're dealing with nations today, whether Jewish nations or Gentile nations, and People think, well, God dealt with the Jews in such a different way, but did He really? Is that what the Old Testament tells us? Certainly the Jews had unique advantages that we would distinguish from other nations, but in terms of God's moral government of the culture and society, did He really deal with them differently by a different standard than other nations? Leviticus 18 verse 28 says, that Israel itself ought to avoid these uh, land-defiling abominations, quote, lest the land vomit you out also when you defile it, as it vomited out the nations that were before it. So sexual perversion caused God to expel the nation of uh, the Canaanites, the, the Hivites, the Jebusites, all of these nations, God expelled from the land because of their sexual perversion. He says if Israel comes in, they don't have some kind of special exemption. They'll be cast out as well for, their, for committing the exact same sin. So God deals with the nations very similarly. Uh, Jew or Gentile, He's the God who enforces His law among them, whether the law of nature on the heart or the law of Scripture or the law uh, of the Ten Commandments set in stone. Uh, We see this again in uh, Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 7. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down, and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it does evil in my sight, so on and so forth, uh, he says, then I'll relent concerning the good which, uh, with which I said I would benefit it. So, obedience and disobedience. Blessing and curse. Y- you can see that God is applying this to a nation. Now, He applies it to, to the southern kingdom of Judah. But He's not saying it's only limited to the Jews. He's saying a nation. Any nation. It's a general principle that is in view even today. And we could look at Psalm 2, which speaks of the Gentiles and the Jews, both of whom uh, raged and conspired against the Lord's Messiah. And then it speaks to all nations, all kings, all judges of the earth, saying, kiss the Son, obey the Lord Jesus, believe on Him, or you'll all be destroyed. So there's a common dealing of God with all nations. He's the God of the Jews, He's the God of the Gentiles, He's discipling all nations, He's discipling the Jewish nation, He's discipling the Gentile nations through the gospel. Now when we speak of an unbelieving and impenitent nation, what are we talking about? Unbelieving and impenitent. In other words, no faith in the truth of the Bible and no repentance of the sins condemned in the Bible. No faith, no obedience. No faith, no repentance. When we speak of a nation in this respect, what are we saying? Obviously, nations aren't regenerated with saving faith and repentance unto life on an individual level. So what do we mean? Well, we can speak of an unbelieving and impenitent nation first in terms of its official status, its official constitutional status. Is this a nation that recognizes the truth and righteousness of the Bible as supreme and submits itself self-consciously to these things. You can have a nation that officially enters into covenant with God through Christ to be faithful to Scripture, uh, to guide everything in the life of the nation by the truth and righteousness of God's revealed will in Scripture. That's what you had in a sense with Israel in the Old Testament. That's what you had with uh, Scotland with the Scottish covenants. But, sad to say, it's very rare. You can have a nation that does that officially, by the way, like Israel in the Old Testament, but is predominantly unbelieving and impenitent even though they're officially believing and repentant through their constitutional documents. And you you can see this uh, at a second level, not just officially, but predominantly. A nation that is predominantly unbelieving and impenitent. And we can look at the history of the United States and we can see that even though we've never, strictly speaking, entered into covenant with God through Christ as a nation. Uh, there's the Mayflower Compact, there are a lot of encouraging things in the state colonial constitutions and so forth, but we never fully entered into this as a nation. But There have been times in our early history where we have been a predominantly believing and repentant society, where the truth and righteousness of the Bible has been received predominantly throughout the families and societies and regions of our land. So we can think officially, we can think predominantly. But as we look at our nation today, we can see clearly... We're neither officially believing and repentant, nor are we predominantly believing and repentant. We're just like those in the days of the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of our predominant spiritual character. We are a perverse and unbelieving generation. We're a generation uh, which is a brood of vipers, unbelieving and disobedient. We could go to numerous passages where Jesus speaks of His own generation, but you get the point. Uh, This is what we're thinking of. And that was true of the Jews that Paul is dealing with in the first century. The unconverted Jews, though they may say great things about the Torah, about the prophets, about the Psalms, officially maybe they're believing and repentant, but ultimately, predominantly, they're unbelieving and unrepentant. And it's interesting, the Old Testament describes what this looks like. When God's people fall away from true faith and true repentance at a national level, Leviticus 26 describes the sins that will bring about national calamity and judgment upon the nation of Israel. Verse 1 You shall not make idols for yourselves, false religion within the nation. Neither a carved image nor a sacred pillar shall you rear up for yourselves nor shall you set up an engraved stone in your land to bow down to it. So a nation that has full and free access to and participation in false religion is the kind of nation that's going to receive all the the horrific judgments. You can read this for yourself later, the the pain and suffering experienced by the nation. Many of the things we see today uh, in seed form. But it goes on, you shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. So what is an unbelieving and impenitent nation? It's a nation where predominantly God's Sabbath is not kept holy and God's worship is not uh, engaged in in spirit and in truth with reverence and godly fear in a biblical manner. So you can see here what, what it means to be impenitent as a nation. And we see it easily applies to the people of Paul's day in the Jewish community, it easily applies in our own day. Listen to this, another description of an impenitent nation. Deuteronomy 28, verse 47. Again, a laundry list of horrific judgments that if you read it this afternoon, you will be amazed at how many of them are coming to pass in our own land today. Deuteronomy 28, 47. Here's the reason why all these horrible things happened to their nation. They lost all their liberty and comfort and, and wealth. And uh, they were the head, they became the tail. Why? Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart for the abundance of everything. So an unbelieving and impenitent nation is a nation that forgets the Lord, leaves the Lord in the rear view mirror, and speeds away pursuing earthly blessing and enjoying the abundance of everything and yet refusing to serve the Lord. Refusing to give thanks with gladness of heart for the abundance of everything. And the Lord then says, therefore, you shall serve your enemies. You wouldn't serve Me with an offering of thanksgiving, with obedience to My commands. You shall serve. You shall be enslaved to your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger, in thirst, in nakedness, And in need of everything. You had the abundance of everything. You didn't give thanks. You ignored me. You rejected me. You despised me. You cast my law behind your back. You said in your heart, there is no God. You worshipped other gods of your own devising. And now you'll be in need of everything. He'll put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. That's God's warning to a nation that is unbelieving and impenitent, predominantly, as is our own nation. Now, what does it mean for such a nation to regard itself as superior? Now, when we speak of an unbelieving and impenitent nation regarding itself as superior, we're not saying that it simply gives thanks to God for the abundance of everything. Because it may be that some nations like our own have experienced a superior abundance. To many other nations. Uh, we've received far more God-given unmerited blessings in our land than many other nations. And if that's the case, by no means does the gospel exclude that kind of thing where we give honor and glory and say, not in the hypocritical way of the Pharisee, you know, thank you God that I'm so much better, but no, thank you God for all the unmerited blessings. We are hell-deserving, ill-deserving sinners. You have blessed us in countless ways with spiritual privileges, with external prosperity and liberty. Lord, we thank you in that you've blessed us far more than you blessed others, and we can't figure out why. We don't deserve it. We're not greater as the Jews or as the American people or as whatever ethnicity you want to use. We're not better, we're not greater. Are we better than they? No, yet we've received more from your hand. Praise be the name of God. That's not excluded. But regarding itself as superior, remember chapter 2, verse 17. Indeed, you are called a Jew, and rest on the law, and make your boast in God, and know His will, and approve the things that are excellent, Being instructed out of the law, the Jews prided themselves. Verse 19, you are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind. So you see, boasting in you yourself, boasting in itself, that's the problem. Regarding itself as a nation and as a people, as superior. As Job's friends uh, gave the impression, we are the people and wisdom dies with us. We're the greatest nation that's ever lived. The Jews thought this. They spoke like this. The Pharisees were on a mission to make Jerusalem great again because of all the previous era of blessings. And we see it today in America where people think that the American people are superior. And how did we get these blessings? Because we're better. And our principles are better. And our work ethic is better. But my friends, all these things are a gift from God. And if there are principles that we've received, those are from God as well. Why did He give those principles to us and not to somebody else? We're hell-deserving, ill-deserving recipients of God's unmerited goodness as a nation. And to whom much is given, Jesus says, much shall be required. Much shall be required. And the Jews, as as really any nation with patriotic self-deception, even in our own land... We regard ourselves as superior for a number of reasons. For the Jews, it was first their glorious past. When John confronted them with the need to repent of their sins and receive the baptism of repentance and bring forth the fruit of repentance, what did the Pharisees say? What did the Jewish community say at large? Many of them. We are Abraham's offspring. We're Abraham's offspring. John nine twenty eight. the Pharisees boast, we're Moses' disciples. We have this amazing, rich, and glorious past. Paul refers to it in Romans 9, 4, and 5. The Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption. Israel's my firstborn son. Let my people go. The exodus, the adoption. The glory, the presence of God in the tabernacle. The covenants, the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments. The service of God. All of the worship ordinances of the Old Testament. And the promises. Of whom are the fathers? And from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came who is over all the eternally blessed God. There's no past more glorious than what the first century Jews could have boasted in. But they boasted in it. And they boasted in it foolishly. Why is it that a Jew would be regarded as superior even as a recipient of eternal life and of God's saving favor and blessing simply because he descends from those of the past who did such great and mighty works of faith and obedience as Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David. Why just by descending from these individuals and being part of the nation that they in a sense founded, Why would that make someone superior with God or with man? Jesus cuts through this ridiculous argument like a hot knife through butter in Matthew chapter 23 because he says, verse 29, as he's dealing out the woes to the Pharisees, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, "...if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets." He says, if you're going to reject the gospel on the basis of, we're sons of Abraham, therefore we are imputed with all of Abraham's significance, all of Abraham's superiority, all of his faith and obedience and repentance and salvation... We're his sons, so we receive all of that from him. We are to be regarded in light of our descent from this glorious past. Sons of Abraham. He says, yeah, but you're also sons of all kinds of wretched, wicked people who murdered and stoned the prophets of old. So if your genealogical connection to Abraham puts you on a pedestal, your genealogical connection to the murderers of the prophets knocks you right off the pedestal. And you can't say, well, but even though we're we're descended from them uh, physically, the people who murdered the prophets, spiritually we really have much more in common with the prophets. He says, well, that goes both ways. Because now you're saying, really it's your spiritual heritage that matters, and if that's the case, then in reality you have nothing in common with Abraham because he rejoiced to see my day. And he did the works of God. And you want to murder the Son of God. You can go to John 8 and cross-reference. That's the argument. My friends, the Jews of old and Americans today uh, need to be rebuked here for this sort of uh, mindless, patriotic viewing of history. As looking back at American history, for instance, and thinking, well, we descend from this glorious past, and yes, there are many glorious things to celebrate, many great deeds of might in the history of this civilization from the Mayflower on. Children, read your American history. Read and, and, hear, and let your parents teach you about some of the great things that God has done on American soil great revivals, great uh, leaders and generals, and uh, uh, I could say presidents, I'm sure there's a couple up, but um, there are many godly people in the history of this nation that you can learn from and learn about. And so it was for the Jews. There's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and the prophets. Uh, But you see, there's not just the good, there's the bad and there's the ugly. And it was no different for the Jews. You had a whole history of stiff-necked impenitence and idolatry, which Stephen brings out in Acts chapter 7. There's a whole history of stubbornness and unbelief and wickedness and perversion among the Jews. It's unavoidable. And so you can't take pride and say, well, uh, here's the glorious heritage, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yeah, but what about all the other stuff? You've got to look at the good, the bad, and the ugly. The same with American history. There are a lot of things that we could celebrate. There are many things that in good conscience we cannot celebrate. And I'm not going to go into those at this moment. Many atrocities, many evils, certainly in recent decades for sure, but even over the course of history. Uh, injustices and problems. Now, we need to look at both. And so we're not sitting here trying to... Um, you know, puff ourselves up with some patriotic pride, but we're looking at history not in a selective, false patriotism, but we're looking at it in a balanced way. And when we do, we find that there are many good things, we give God the glory, there are many evil things, and we humble ourselves in shame. And that needs to be part of true patriotism. Not that either one takes precedence, right? You have some people that are just Pollyanna patriots and everything's good and the grand old high-flying flag. And then you've got all these other people that just want to bury the glorious past of American history in the soil and um, essentially defecate on it and disown it and put it all to shame. We need to be balanced in our patriotism. And when we do that it's going to disabuse us of this kind of pride. We can give thanks, but we see the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, Secondly, uh, there is a temptation to regard ourselves as superior because of spiritual advantages. Spiritual advantages. The Jews had the law. They had the Scriptures. God had revealed Himself and drawn near to them as never He had with any other nation, no question about it. Uh, of all the families of the earth, he says, I've, I've known you only of all the families of the earth. They were the bride, the covenant people in the midst of that nation. And so they had many advantages. But these advantages are not meant to be leveraged for the purposes of boasting. You see that in Romans chapter 2. Again, I already read it, but they're boasting in their knowledge of the law and everybody else is blind and they're... Uh, sort of in a patronizing and superior way teaching everyone else spiritual advantages these things ought to humble us the gospel went to the jew first but they rejected it that ought to humble them the gospel has come to america in ways that transcend what he, what god has done in so many other nations we have the bible we have it everywhere. We have churches on every corner. We have a history of religious opportunities and spiritual advantages that are nothing compared to 90 plus percent of people throughout all of human history. We have these advantages, but advantages are not enough. Chapter three, verse one, what advantage has the Jew? What is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. But he goes on to say, if you don't believe and repent, then that blessing is going to circle back around and bring about your demise to the glory of God's justice. And so much more could be said throughout the Scriptures on that point. The Jews were constantly boasting. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. They boasted in their spiritual advantages and in their spiritual Uh, Privileges. And my friends, we can do the same today. We can call America a Christian nation just because there are a lot of opportunities to learn about Christ, because there are a lot of Bibles, because there's freedom to be a Christian, when in reality, the predominant spiritual character of our land is anti God, anti Christian, and rebellious against the Lord in countless ways. We've been given much. And we've cast it aside and cast it behind our backs. So there is the the, the greater the advantage, the greater the guilt, which ought to humble us. Also, temporal freedom and prosperity. We said already the Jews boasted. We've never been slaves in the way these other nations have. Uh, We've got our place. We've got our nation. We have our national prosperity and liberty. But what is the purpose of that? Why does God give these unique blessings to nations and to people groups? Romans 2, 4 tells us, it's so that we'll repent. It's not to crown us with this achievement. You're a great nation. I'm going to bless you, America, because you've done so many good things. I'm going to crown you with liberty and prosperity. No, no, it's not because of our righteousness. It's because we need to repent. Repent. Romans 2, verse 4, or do you despise the riches of His goodness, forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Repentance. Now, I'm not denying that obedience and faithfulness to God blesses a nation. We'll see that in a moment. But my point is, when you look at a perverse and unbelieving generation like our own, and still all the superior blessings that we have, you can see clearly God has purposed this to call us to repentance. And if this doesn't work, guess what? What's coming next? He'll remove all those blessings and uh, in a sense, as we read earlier, bring destruction on our heads. And maybe that'll get the point across. But temporal freedom and prosperity is to call us to humble repentance, not to pride. Fourthly, professed adherence to basic morality. The Jews had the law. They preached that you shouldn't steal, you shouldn't commit adultery, you shouldn't worship idols. They boasted in the law, they considered themselves theological experts lecturing everyone on ethics and morality. We've got basic morality, we have these principles, and yet we're told that they They didn't honor them. They didn't obey them. They heard the law. They had the law, but they didn't obey the law. And so they were committing adultery. They were committing idolatry. They were stealing. They were doing the very things that their professed adherence to biblical morality utterly condemned. Are we better than they? Paul says, no, we're not. No one is righteous, not one. And among the Jews, you had no less cursing, bitterness. They hid it well. They covered it and cloaked it in self-righteous religiosity to a great extent, but they were whitewashed tombs with all uncleanness on the inside. And so you look at America, you look at many conservative pundits, you know, speaking of how America has held tight and held held tightly to these principles of morality and the existence of God and... uh, love your neighbor, and these generic principles of morality that never seem to have anything to do with the first four commandments of God's law, but in any case, uh, they they pride themselves in this. But you see, my friends, our, our country is a cesspool of perversity. If you look at it in light of these basic principles of morality, it is a cesspool of perversion and blasphemy and bloodshed and greed and corruption and deception and idolatry. And so, my friends, this is not the nation that God says is blessed and is ripe for further blessing. It's utter self-deception. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. If we want a nation where our land is healed, then God's people, God's people need to come to Him in humility. God's people need to turn from their wicked ways and come before Him in solemn prayer and plead for the healing of the land. God's people need to believe and obey and, God, and, and the nation needs to be filled with God's people. Such that the nation itself is predominantly a nation whose God is the Lord. If we think that there's anything of superiority to celebrate in any respect, without that, we're deceived. Righteousness exalts a nation. But sin is a reproach to any people. You can read throughout the Old Testament. You can read through the New Testament. What is it that God requires of nations? What is it that makes a nation a great nation? Again, still not boasting in it, but it's still a great nation. What is it that makes a great nation? It's righteousness. It's faith. It's God's will being done on earth even as the angels do it in heaven. It's kiss the Son lest He be angry. It's faith. It's obedience. It's humility. It's humility in the sight of God and so we see that any unbelieving and impenitent nation which regards itself as superior on account of its glorious past its spiritual advantages its temporal freedom and prosperity or its professed adherence to basic morality is utterly self-deceived now briefly some application in closing first be grateful for our nation's many blessings. Be grateful for our nation's many blessings. I know the the bulk of the sermon is negative, but we have to tear down the the structures of ungodly patriotism before we can build up the structures of godly patriotism. We need to be grateful for those distinct blessings which God has given to this nation. And, And we can see a glorious past, spiritual advantages temporal freedom and prosperity, and to some extent, professed adherence to basic morality. We don't boast in these things. We see a departure from these things. But we can boast in God and give thanks that He has even given us these things in the first place. One of the marks of a nation that is teetering on the edge of total collapse and destruction is ingratitude. And this shows us the satanic agenda of the woke revisionists. Who want to completely dispense with any positive aspects of American history? Romans 1 verse 21 tells us that those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness also seek to suppress God's blessing. Nor did they give thanks. When they set up their idols, they set aside gratitude and thankfulness to God. Chapter two, verse four. It's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. So what does Satan want to do? Persuade you that God's never shown goodness in any particular or unique way to this country. If he removes the reasons for the gratitude, namely the knowledge of his goodness, therefore he removes that motive to repentance. Um, The same could be said of 2 Timothy 3. Ingratitude. We need to avoid it. We need to be grateful on Memorial Day. Give thanks For God's blessing on this nation. Secondly, understand how things work. Understand how things work. Go back and read Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26 and understand the things that contribute to a nation's blessedness in the sight of God by His grace are what? Well, gratitude, giving thanks for the blessings He's already given, but God's Sabbath, God's sanctuary, God's worship, the first table of the law. Think of how God's name is profaned every day, millions of times perhaps, throughout the world and throughout our nation and its media. Uh, These are the chief roadblocks to the restoration and healing of our land. It is God's honor and God's glory first and foremost. And so we need to be careful that we don't read these passages and confuse incidental conformity to God's law by way of pragmatic political efforts, incidental conformity to God's law versus self-conscious submission to God's law. Take the issue of abortion. Incidental conformity to God's law, persuading a bunch of ungodly people because of the light of nature or whatever to get rid of abortion, that will save lives and so we should do it as best we can, right? That will save lives. But it won't save our nation. It won't save our nation. Never in the history of the Bible did God restore or heal a nation based upon incidental, pragmatic conformity. They just stumbled their way into something that conforms with the Bible. It's self-conscious submission. That's what we need to be stressing and that's what we need to be laboring for for the healing of our land. Self-conscious repentance and faith. Thirdly, and again I'm hastening here, avail yourself of the true patriot's power source. And that of course is the gospel of Jesus Christ, chapter 1, verse 16, the power of God unto salvation. Jesus Christ is the Savior of sinners, and Jesus Christ is the healer of lands and of nations. Avail yourself of that gospel power. Paul longed in a unique way for his countrymen to be saved. He longed for the healing and restoration of the Jews. And what did he do to that end? He had great sorrow in his heart. Chapter 9, verses 1-3 through for them. But chapter 10, what does he do? He says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. He bore witness to them. He preached to them. He prayed for them. He labored to see... All sorts of men, from the highest kings to the lowest citizen, all of them come to a knowledge of the truth. First Timothy chapter 2. The gospel, the means of grace, this is the method that brings life from the dead for Israel, Romans 11. For the nations, Romans 11. This is what turned the world upside down in the days of the apostles crushed the serpent's head again and again. This is what established the Protestant Christendom in which we live and whose borrowed capital we're spending at this very moment. That's the power. Let's use it to God's glory. And finally, look to the future with hope. Uh, we don't have time to get into it, but if you read, go back this afternoon and, and read or sing through Psalm 67, all nations of the earth fearing the Lord, Psalm 72, all kings bowing down before Him, all nations serving Him. Psalm 22, verse 27, uh, all the nations returning to the Lord and fearing and worshiping His name. Read Romans 11, all the, the nations and the Jews themselves, life from the dead for the entire world. There are many reasons as we celebrate Memorial Day, not just to look to the past, but to look to the glorious future that Jesus sets before us through the power of His Gospel. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we give thanks and we repent of our ingratitude. We pray that You would give us opportunities to explore the history of this nation That we would find ample opportunities to give thanks for the many good things and the many good men and women that you raised up, and to lament and humble ourselves for the many evils as well. Make us to be balanced, biblical patriots who would seek to bless our land by sharing with it the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we may see his dominion from the river to the ends of the earth. And indeed, from sea to shining sea, we ask in His name. Amen.